podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. My name is Charles. With me are Richard, Ian, and Alexander. Today we will be doing another scenario spotlight, and this time it is a clash by moonlight. Our open topic this week is rules of ages past, where we will dive into profiles from past editions and compare them to what they are today. So uh, let's start by talking about a clash by moonlight. So we'll start with deployment. Uh, deployment, both players roll a d6. Player who rolls highest deploys their first warband first. They alternate until everyone's deployed. Game ends uh, at a turn in which one army is reduced to a quarter. The victory points are one point for causing one or more wounds to enemy leader. Killing the enemy leader is two points. Three points for breaking the opponent. If you are unbroken, it's five points. One point for having at least one hero remaining at the end of the game. If you have one and killed more heroes than your opponent, you score three. If you have at least one and your opponent has none, you score five. And the special rule, uh, the Dark of Night, you cannot target your opponent's models with shooting or magical powers outside of 12 inches. But if you are within a 12-inch range, you gain plus one to wound rolls. Siege engines can target from wherever, but only hit on a roll of a six. So to start, are you guys a fan of this one? If it comes up in a tournament pack? I think it's kind of like a fun twist on the standard, like, killy scenario thing, where it's like you're, you're equally focused on breaking the opponent as you are on killing the opponent's heroes, which is kind of like a fun, like, it's a nice little change. And then also the special rule that doesn't really make sense the way they justify it, but I think we all just accept the way it works, <laughs> um, is, is fun, you know. And also it's kind of confusing when it interacts with models with the Cave Dweller special rule, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. Yeah, I do like this one as well. I think the shooting works really differently in this one. It's not necessarily a nerf or a buff because, like, it reduces the range but makes it more deadly. It just works differently, right? Yeah, of course Ian would like this one. Um, I think this is one of the only scenarios where a win condition is shooting. You know, most of the time in SVG, uh, the shoot phase is more about winning the initiative and forcing the opponent to come to you. But this is one of the ones where I've seen entire armies get wiped out in the shoot phase. So, yes, the range of bows and, and siege weapons are shorter, but it's just it's a lot more deadly. Let's just say that. And throwing weapons are king. Yeah, because it doesn't really reduce the range of the throwing weapon. And going up plus one to wound, which is uh, essentially plus two strength, is just crazy on throwing weapons. So a really strong choice in this scenario. I mean, I don't see it as much with uh, siege weapons in this scenario, but I guess since a lot of siege weapons wound already on a three plus, then I guess it would be on a two plus then, even though it's hitting on a six. That's... That's pretty deadly, you know, wounding on a 2+, plus and um, if it's one of the siege weapons that take away all wounds, too. Yeah, I think the most deadly siege weapons in this scenario are the ones that come with a reroll to hit and be able to scatter. So the Mordor Catapult and the Isengard Assault Ballista in the Legion, because even though they hit on a 6 over 12 inches, they always have two chances to get that 6. Mordor Catapult, it's a bit more of a gamble because you're always hitting on sixes like because you have a 12 inch minimum range which is the range of the clash by moonlight limitation so like even if your enemy comes close you can't hit them but i think that reroll is really really good value in clash by moonlight 
Yeah, I think I think it's one of the scenarios where you would consider using your might to actually hit with your siege weapon because there's a very, very good chance you're going to win. Yeah, I think armies that rely on bows, they have to play differently, they have to think differently because when your bows are reduced 12 inches, you're almost playing like a kiting game, right? If you're versing an opponent with also good shooting, then you're almost just playing like a dance at like a 12-inch distance. And there's a lot of like kiting that you can do uh, with throwing weapons or bows. Uh, I just like usually shooting only lasts like the first few turns of a game. But for this one, it can go on for sometimes the entire game or at least until like one side is broken. So like you said, Richard, like this is a scenario where shooting, it's actually like a win condition. It can actually happen the entire game. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point that you raised because uh, I've actually had a couple games with Ian and other players where the kiting and like the standoff has gone on for a very long time, especially in a, like a more serious game at a tournament. You almost like rather have the draw than be the first to advance if the shooting is close to equal, because if you make the first mad dash, a lot of the times you're giving up your advantage. So I guess that's kind of the downside of the scenario. If neither player wants to make that move and give up their advantage, then it becomes a shoot off and there's not a lot of combats. Yeah, and just following up to what you just said, this is a scenario where I actually see heroic shoots that heroic action that's pretty rare usually because like shooting does so much damage shooting first actually matters in certain situations well i, I was just gonna say that like i i agree that you can kite armies in, like, in this scenario like it happens a lot more but i feel like it's a lot harder to do because the amount of space you have to like effectively shoot is what that's like one movement away right so if you move just within 12 and your opponent moves up a whole bunch of models six inches, then that means next turn, unless you win the heroic move off, you're getting charged. So it is, there is a lot of kiting that happens in this scenario, but it's also very hard to do effectively. It really depends on how your priority moves at, like work shakes out and you have to be really careful with it. Yeah, and I guess armies that have trouble closing the distance, if they don't have much firepower in their army, they could really struggle or just get harassed and broken into pieces. Like if you're playing, let's say, dwarves or hobbits, and you don't have very much shooting, like throwing weapons or bows, your opponent can take advantage of that. And just kiting wouldn't be that hard, right? I'm surprised Alex has no thoughts because, I mean, I've definitely seen his army get shot to pieces before. But maybe it's too traumatic to talk about. That's why I'm not talking about it, because the the first game I think I ever played of Clash by Moonlight in a tournament, I had Kazadoom and I came up against a whole bunch of Blackroot Veil Archers. And uh, yeah, you guys talk about having situations where an entire army gets broken before combat. That's that's one of those situations. I lost Ballin. I lost probably half my troops by the time combat started because I didn't have enough shooting and I didn't have the mobility it was just like I had like half my army left and he had his whole army. I just stood there like I don't even know. It's not even an uphill battle. That's just playing until the clock runs out because there really was not much left to play for. It's nothing quite like wounding dwarves on fives. <laughs> <laughs> it hurt so much. Balin went down in one turn of shooting. He took everything at Balin and it was gone. I was like, man, he doesn't even have to disappear in Moria. He disappeared on the battlefield. So so there's one of us that doesn't really like the scenario. <laughs> I mean, I'm fine with it. I'm just saying, like, when you guys talk about whole armies disappearing in the shoot phase, that that's it. Yeah. That, that's what it's like. 
Castle Doom does not suit the scenario well at all. When I used to play this scenario, I thought that the more heroes you have, the more disadvantage you'd be. But now that I think about it, or as I play the scenario more, that's not necessarily the case because the wording for the VP is if you've killed more heroes. So if you have more heroes than your opponent, doesn't necessarily mean you're disadvantaged, right? It's like, how killy are they? And can you wipe out more of your opponent's heroes than they can kill of yours? I think one more thing I'd want to mention is magic powers and abilities also are reduced to 12-inch range. Most spells are 12-inch or less anyway, but I feel like certain models, like let's say Saruman with his um, Immobilize, or certain spells that cast 18 inches, or like abilities that only need a line of sight, like Loy, their actually their abilities are actually a lot weaker. Um, in some situations, they have to get closer to be able to use their ability, and it puts them at risk of danger. All right, let's move on to our lists for today, and they are 800-point lists, and. We'll each talk about our list in the context of a tournament that contains a Clash by Moonlight. And then we'll talk about them and rank them. Quickly, can I just go over two FAQs that are, I feel like, going to be important to our discussion in this scenario? The first one involves Blinding Light, the magical power. So if it is cast and you're outside of the 12-inch range of bows, the opponent can still see you and shoot at you. And they still get the plus one to wound, but they'll still be suffering from the effects. They'll only hit on a six. So that one's interesting. I don't know why they get the plus one to wound in that, because that doesn't make any sense by the way they justify the plus one to wound. Anyway, the second one is involving models with the Cave Dweller special rule, and they can basically see further than 12. So they can still shoot at models further than 12, and they also get the plus one to wound. And also, models with the Cave Dweller special rule that get shot at by the things don't get the, the things that are doing the shooting don't get the plus one to wound. So all of a sudden, goblins are, like, way better at shooting in this scenario. I just I just don't understand, though. It seems like there's a contradiction between those two things. Like, the blinding light means you can see better, but then you still get hit by arrows easier. I, I, I don't know. That, that just really frustrates me. I just wrote those two again. It's just like, I don't... Anyway. Yeah, let's see. So I've got Elrond completely kitted out. Four Rivendell Knights with shield. Seven High Elf Warriors with shield and spear. One with shield, spear, and banner. Four with bow. High Elf Captain, completely kitted out. Four High Elf Warriors with Shield, four, three with Shield and Spear, three with Bow. And Kyrdan, three High Elf Warriors with Shield, two with Shield and Spear, two with Bow. So that's 36 models total. Breaks at 19, six Might, a little sad face beside it. And uh, 13 Bows, plus one being the Captain. I Aside from, you know, obviously having two models that can cast magic, which is useful, like Charles said, most spells have a range of 12 or less anyways, so I'm not too concerned with the whole 12-inch range issue with magic, especially considering my magic very much focuses on my own army. So I'm, I like having the potential for two spellcasters there. Elrond, of course, is just very powerful in many aspects. So, you know, he can fight, he can move, he has his foresight points, his ability to re-roll his fate roll, so he's difficult to actually get through to. The Rivendell Knights don't count towards the bow limit, which in this scenario helps within a certain range. So I do have a fairly good number of bows. The High Elf Captain I've always liked. He gives me the march, of course. He's mounted, he's good defensively, he can still fight. And because of the expert rider special rule, he can have the shield and the bow. So I have a bow that has a little bit of might attached to it, which in this scenario I think helps. 
And then Kyrdan, you know, because of that FAQ, I can't cast Blinding Light from really far away or I'll actually be a detriment to myself. But within 12, you can cast Blinding Light. It gets Aura of Command, which with Elves, to be fair, isn't a huge issue. And Aura of Dismay, which, of course, is fantastic when you're trying to stop your opponent from swarming you. Aside from that, the list is designed to die slowly. I have a lot of just high-elf shields, shield and spear for support, and then, of course, just lots of bows. But yeah, that's it. Obviously, Might is a weakness, unless I wanted to take the Twins. But, you know, I'm not terribly unhappy with it. But yeah, literally no one has words. It's amazing. It's so good slash bad that everyone is speechless. Well, I can start. So I think I know what you were trying to go for here. The build is pretty centered around Elrond. I don't know. Mm, Elrond kind of got the short end of the stick recently since the new profile came out. His Nature's Wrath isn't as good as before, and in the most recent FAQ, his Renew isn't as good as before. But I still think he's a pretty good pick overall as like the leader. Even though you're not taking advantage of his uh, ability to remove the Rivendell Knights from the bow limit count by taking more of them. Like you said, he's still good for his utility with the Foresight points. Kyrdan as a pick is a little bit, I don't know if I agree with it. Um, like you mentioned, the Blinding Light isn't the greatest in this scenario. Overall, in like a, in tournament, Kyrdan is really good. I just think that if you were struggling with Six Might, Kyrdan might not have been my pick. I might have chosen, like, I don't know, like an Aerostore or swapped out the Captain as well and put in maybe the Twins. But he does provide other auras as well. And Enchanted Blades on Elrond or the Captain is pretty good. I think the bows you have, you know, that that's a decent amount of shooting for this scenario. That, that's pretty good, along with the Rivendell Army bonus. If your enemy gets within 12 of you and you're shooting, you can reroll to hit. And rerolling to hit when you're rolling at plus one to wound is deadly. I think the hero choices could be a bit stronger. You know, depending on what you take in, you could bump up your model count a bit. But if you want to go more knight heavy, then I think between 30 and 36 is good. So I think it's not a bad list, Alex. You don't seem very confident in it, but I don't think it's bad. It's okay, Charles. While I was building this list, I definitely toyed with an almost all Rivenel knight list. I didn't like the overall count, though. I had Elrond and 18 Rivendell Knights, and I'm like, ah, hey, this doesn't count towards any of my bow limit, but I had like a total of 26 models and only five might points uh, at the end of that. So I don't know, I feel like Elrond in general, like the ability to remove Rivendell Knights from your bow limit is great, except you're almost always going to have Elrond at 190 points and then... The knights are 22 points each, so that's like saying this incredibly expensive set of units is going to not affect your bow limit, except it munches away at your count dramatically. So that was kind of where I wrestled with it. Okay, so I actually do like this list. You know, there's I think there's a lot of balance in this, but I think in just this particular scenario, there's a couple weaknesses that are more glaring. So what I do like is the Elrond pick. I think with his ability to swing priorities in your favor, I think is very important because of, you know, this standoff that I we talked about earlier. And you have the mounted models too. So, you know, everyone's going to be within, you know, 10 to 12 inches. 
And if you can swing two priorities in your favor in a row, then that gives you a good opportunity to take the initiative and actually engage in combat. I think what I don't like as much is the other hero choices. And I understand why you took them, because they're good in other scenarios. But kind of like Charles said, Kirdan, he doesn't do as much as he usually does in this scenario. And the fact that you have two non-striking heroes, when this scenario is about killing and protecting your heroes, it's, it's about heroes dueling. So not only will you have a hard time killing other heroes, because only Elrond can do the job, there's a very good chance that they can also take you down. And I know you, you're going to say High Elf Captains fight six, yes, but the opponents will likely just throw a striking hero into it, a fresh one, and then very easily take it down. So... Yeah, so I think overall, I like it in a in a tournament setting, but in this particular scenario, I think it's average. Um, you have the bows, you have a good leader, but the other heroes are a bit lacking. But Richard, the high elf captain is fight six. Um, no, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, to not have another striking hero in this particular scenario can definitely be a bit difficult. I think though that does also depend on matchup because there are a lot of lists where the High Elf Captain would still have that advantage. It's a fair analysis. I mean, who am I to talk? I only have one striking hero, and all mine are weenies, too, so... Yeah, but you have you have Cave Dwellers, so, you know, we've, we've already talked about this. I don't know why you guys are dunking on Kyrdan so much in this scenario. I actually like him in this. Because, like, you start really far away, right? You start at 12 inches onto the board. Yeah, so you have 24 inches, so you have at least like two or three turns before you, you're going to do anything where Kyrdan has time to get up his other auras besides Blinding Light. And then once you do get in range of shooting, if the opponent has shooting, he can then throw up his Blinding Light. And with the 13 elf bows, hopefully re-rolling to hit, he should win the shooting war in that case, right? Okay, I'll say this. He's not bad, but he's average. Because what you're saying, that strategy, though... If the opponent has any amount of shooting, once he throws up that blinding light, you can just back off. And then I feel like you as the Rivendell player are forced to chase them. I mean, I guess so, but he could, he doesn't have to channel it, right? So you could just throw it up for one turn and then next turn, you know, reevaluate. So it's, yeah, he can't turn it off, but he can, he can choose if he wants to channel it or not. Which, you know, like, like we said earlier, his mic count is kind of low, so but, you know, he probably won't want to channel it. And then the other thing is, like, like you guys also mentioned, is Elrond still has the foresight points. So... If the enemy does close in, then he should hopefully be able to dictate at least the first round of combat or like the first priority where combat is going to happen. So I think together in this scenario, it's not a bad combo, but I do agree that this list is probably more well-rounded for like an overall tournament play rather than this scenario specifically, but I still think it works pretty well. In order for Kirdan to be in a position to provide beneficial blinding light, you kind of have to put him in a vulnerable spot and he's two and it's one fate in this scenario. If one of his three heroes go down and he fails to kill more than one hero, then it's going to be hard for him to score that objective, right? I agree. I also will say this list is definitely more balanced towards the breaking VPs rather than the hero killing VPs, which I feel like, I guess there's a few different ways you can try and play this scenario, but it feels like most lists try and focus on like one or the other. Some of them will focus on both, but I think, yeah, if you end up with a lot of well-rounded tournament lists, they'll be able to do one's half of it better than the other, which is clearly demonstrated with his list. I'm sure you want to go next. Let's talk about Cave Dwellers. Okay, so I'm playing a Pure Moria list today. 
I have Deberza as my leader, uh, leading four warrior goblins with shield, three with spear, one with no war gear, three prowlers, uh, one warg marauder, three bat swarms. And in my second warband, I have a black shield shaman, leading one warg marauder and five goblin prowlers. And so I have, okay, in my third warband, I think I had a little typo here. I said Black Shield, but I meant the regular Moria Goblin Shaman. Um, also leading the same, though, a Warg Marauder and five Prowlers. And then in my fourth Warband, I have a Moria Goblin Captain with Shield, leading three Goblin Warriors with Shield, four with Spear, and five Prowlers. And in my last Warband, I have the Watcher in the Water. So... This actually doesn't play like the standard Morio list in this scenario. As we talked about, uh, because of the Cave Dweller special rule, my Goblin Bows, so two on each Warg Marauder, and I have three Warg Marauders, so that's uh, six Goblin Bows, shooting at 18-inch range with plus one to wound. I'll have the range advantage over any other army. So that doesn't happen very much, but, you know, you're going to be doing the kiting as Moria. And, and the thing with Warg Marauders is you can move your full 10 inches and the Goblin Archers on top of the Warg can still shoot. So that allows you to, you know, run forward in the beginning of the game and get some extra shooting turns in. And because of the plus one wound and six bows, you know, I could see you taking down like at least a model or turn and for several turns because you're just going to uh, continuously run back. And then I also have, you know, 10 or 11 goblin prowlers with throwing weapons. So that's incredibly useful because the goblin movement is only five. So this prevents people kiting me with other throwing weapons and uh, shorter range bows. You know, strength three plus one to wound. It's going to do a lot of damage as well. And then lastly, I have the Watcher in the Water, which, you know, I can throw a lot of strength three tentacles as well. You know, most of the time, the Watcher doesn't depend on the tentacles to kill. It's mostly about dragging heroes into them. But in this particular scenario, I've actually played a game against evil men. And in one turn, I think I killed five or six Condish Horsemen with the tentacles. So if there's heroes that are avoiding the Watcher in the water, you could still get a lot of value because of the plus one wound. And, and the thing is, the objective of this scenario is to kill heroes. So, you know, even though I don't have a lot of striking heroes, the Watcher and the Bat Swarm, you know, nothing beats that. And then lastly, you know, I have my Black Shield Shaman as my secret weapon. You know, of course, everyone thinks of the Shatter to pair with the Watcher. So. It makes other opponent heroes less deadly. So that's the conservative approach. But what I also like is because this is a scenario about positioning and it's all within 12 inch, I feel like the tremor ability can really be well utilized here to split opponent forces, you know, to force engagements or to even disengage and continue kiting. So I just feel like this force allows a lot of flexibility and also like you play it like uh, uh, what do the North of the Shire podcasts call it? They call it the leaf blower, a harassing type of force.
I think it's also fair to mention the latest FAQ on uh, Watcher in the Water. You're now able to move your full movement and still shoot. It's a generic shooting attack that I think previously we just played it like a bow because there isn't really a section in the rules covering generic shooting attacks. So that just gives it an extra two inch reach, right? Like that's pretty scary. I think the normal standard build of a Horde Goblin list, you would take Groblog instead of the Black Shield Shaman, right? just for like extra might and maybe a second striker. Is it for the Tremor that you gave up Groblog? Yeah, so I really wanted to make Tremor work. Um, and I feel like this is the scenario to do it. But I also feel like Shatter is even better in this scenario if it goes off. Just because if you can put it on the opponent's most killy hero, that's going to really stop them from, you know, attacking my heroes. And like I said earlier, my heroes are, aside from the Watcher, are weenies. You know, they're e very easily taken down. None of them are hard targets. And, and I have quite a few of them, right? So I don't want to be losing two or three because it would be hard to come back from. You said like 10 Prowlers. I count 18. My dude, that is a lot of throwing weapons. <laughs> oh, Okay, yeah. <laughs> I must have missed the warband, but yeah. 18 throwing weapons. So I think I'm just going to go ahead and before even comparing all four of our lists, I'm just going to say you probably have the best firepower in Clash by Moonlight out of the four of us and maybe maybe better firepower than most lists because uh, no one can shoot at your Warg Marauders over 12 inches unless your enemy has a siege weapon. And even when your opponent can shoot at you, they don't get the plus one to wound. So as of the latest FAQ, so that's just scary. And Prowlers are so cheap. They're like seven points. And I think movement five is like not that fast, but they can still move full and shoot. So you could still do some kiting there too. So yeah, I, th I think this is a really strong list. Like you said, your goblin heroes are relatively weak, but the Watcher will just be a hero muncher in this one. I don't think you'll have trouble keeping up with the hero kills. Like, just the tentacles not needing in the ways. As long as you deploy him relatively close to enemy heroes and sort of in the area where you want him, there's not a lot that enemies can do. Like, if you don't grab him into base with you and have one of your three bat swarms trap it, you'll just kill them outright with tentacles. Yeah, and the bat swarms, of course, they go well with the Watcher, but, you know, paired with my few Ward Marauders and Prowlers can be quite deadly as well. And, and I just wanted to mention that I have a total of 44 models. Richard can stop piling it on. We get it. This list is uh, incredibly, I'll say, irritating to play against in this scenario because it makes good on all of the possible special rules that would benefit this army in this scenario. It's just one after another, you know, typical Richard bag of tricks. Every army has, you know, 10 little facets that will all come and bite you. So it's it's a pretty good list. I mean, yeah, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm always impressed by the way Mori can throw together lists that just have so much stuff. And he's done it, you've done it again. Don't wait, what? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I will say the one thing I'm a little bit sad about is when you posted this first, I was like, yes, double black shield shaman, we never see it. And I'm... Sadly, it's not. It's a normal Shaman and a Black Shield Shaman. Still good. Obviously, I think it gives you more options if you have the regular one in there. But, I mean, you could have Double Tremor. Uh? Uh? <laughs> I mean, I think Richard and maybe Ian as well have said in the past, if you take the Black Shield Shaman, you like to double down. <laughs> so maybe you could. Maybe you could do Double Black Shield Shaman. 
but yeah i honestly i think double black shield shaman would be more fun and and i think that when the dice go your way and you're winning the game you'll probably win by a lot more but I guess I was just thinking about, you know, breaking. Because if you do break, um, a lot of your goblin, even the heroes, will be running. And I don't want that. Right now, you have Fury. He stands near Derbers with a Iron Fist rule, a double stand fast. That's, that's, that's really reliable. Without that Fury Shaman, I guess what you could do is, you, as you're getting close to breakpoint, you can dismount some Warg Marauders to delay it. That's probably what I would do. I've just had um, too many experiences with Deburs running away because his courage isn't great. So, yeah, it, it's not great. All right. Ian, would you like to go next? Sure. So when I was writing my list for this, I kind of had like two ideas that I was going for. And the first one was, ooh, I like throwing spears, throwing weapons, and they're really good in this scenario. I should include some or a lot if I can. I didn't get a lot. I got some. And the other idea was, I want heroes who are quite defensive. Well, not maybe not quite defensive, but they have, like, reasonable defensive capabilities just to deny the enemy VPs, which kind of led me down, like, into my first pick for the list. So I, I guess I'll just I'll read it out, and I'll elaborate a little bit more. Unfortunately, I couldn't really find a good way to reconcile those two ideas that I really liked, so I kind of just smushed the two ideas together, and this is what I came out with. Because I also want to have a reasonable chance of being able to kill enemy heroes. So anyway, my first pick and the army leader is Galadriel, and she has the mirror. She has eight Galadriel warriors with spear and shield in the warband, one Galadriel warrior with spear, shield, and banner, three guards of the Galadriel court, and six Galadriel warriors with bow. The second warband is Aemir, and he's fully kitted out with a shield, horse, and throwing spears. And he has six warriors of Rohan with shield and throwing spears and three outwalkers. So just the outriders on foot. Next warband is Durnhelm. She has the throwing spears and she has three warriors of Rohan with shield and throwing spears, three outwalkers. My last warband is Elfhelm with the horse and he has one royal guard with a horse. So that's 38 models, 20 dead to break, 12 bows and 12 throwing spears and 12 points of might. So basically the thinking is defensive wise, I tried to pick, uh, I, I took Galadriel with the mirror, and I tried to pick heroes that have a reasonable amount of fate points so I can regenerate the fate points and hopefully avoid a whole bunch of wounds and keep my heroes alive. Althelm is an exception to this because he only has one fate, but he does have three points of might and heroic defense and that awesome, awesome throwing spear rule, which is even better in this scenario. So what I'm figuring with him is he kind of just tries to pick off wounds whenever he can and just hangs out in your Galadriel protecting her. Like, I don't want to get super aggressive because he is kind of fragile. But other than that, you know, that throwing spear will hopefully be able to do some damage on my opponent's heroes. And then the other two heroes, yeah, um, Amer, just because he's a 3-3-3 hero, he's pretty good. And he should be able to live through, like, the whole game. I mean, he's got the defense 7, 3 fate, 3 wounds, and Galadriel can give all that back, so he should be fine. Good offensive, good defensive. Durnhelm was the one pick I was like, I don't know, but you know what? Eowyn has two fate, and Mary also has two fate, so they're kind of defensive. And for the points cost, she's also reasonably offensive because I still get the army bonus and the throwing spears. So I'm fairly happy with the way the list panned out, I guess. Obviously, I think the greatest boon, I think, is is the three heroes with throwing spears. That's a lot of might-backed throwing weapons. And in general, a lot of shooting in this list, uh, you know, with 12 bows and 12 throwing spears, on top of being able to throw up a blinding light once I get in within that 12-inch uh, radius should mean I've got a good chance of winning the shooting war or doing a lot of damage in any case. And then Galadriel, yeah, just because, you know, being able to command out enemy heroes into vulnerable positions and then hitting them with a bunch of dudes should uh, should do the trick, hopefully. 
I always find this Rohan Lothlorien alliance to be a little bit wonky, just because they don't really like synergize well that easily. But I think you got a good composition here. It's interesting because after Durnhelm was released, I just thought, well, there's like literally no situations where you would take Eowyn now. But I think in this situation, I might. If you want to abuse that Aylmer's uh, thematic rule where he goes crazy, you could do what you've, you've done before. I've seen you where you've thrown in Eowyn and had her die early and then Aylmer becomes a killing machine. I don't think it would work with Durnhelm. I, I checked the FAQ and it doesn't really address it, but I think she only becomes Eowyn when she dismounts. So, I mean, it's like a small synergy and maybe you don't think it'll come up much, but that was just a thought of like a reason to take Eowyn. I don't want her to die, though. I mean, my hero's <laughs> alive. That's the whole point. I don't give up VPs. <laughs> uh, speaking of keeping heroes alive, I, I don't know if you've used Durnhelm before, but Mary actually, he can be pretty easy to uh, maybe not kill, but dismount. And once he's dismounted, he's hard to protect. So any sort of hurl or shooting into combat, he can uh, be uh, separated from the horse really easily. So that might give your opponent an easier kill. To that point, because I know Eowyn or Durnhelm has the, the, the horse lore special rule and then like the two fate that I can regenerate. That's nice. I don't know. Can Mary? Mary can't contribute his fate to that, can he? While he's all horse under. Lord? I mean, yeah, because the Durnhelm special rule has like the Durnhelm profile has horse lord. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think it's covered in FAQ, but. <laughs> but yeah, uh, monsters and, and, and sorcerers blast, though. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the hero choices are great. I'm surprised you took Aylmer, because usually when you ally in Rohan, it's Theodred. <laughs> so. It was purely the extra wounded and the fate. Because I actually did start off with Theodred in there. But then also Theodred's weaker because of his special rule where he's forced to charge. Yeah. I guess my only issue is just having so much Rohan in there. And, and I know it, it's a little bit inevitable because this is the alliance you're doing, but it can be pretty soft. However, your damage output in Clash by Moonlight will be pretty insane. Elfhelm's warband is tiny, right? Just the one model. I wonder if he'd be better if he just took the three heroes and then just max out your warband so you would have a few more models. I, I wonder if that would be better. Or maybe keep Elfhelm and drop Durnhelm. You know what I mean? Just like lose one hero and go for more models. But other than that, yeah, I think it's pretty solid. I think the firepower for this is uh, pretty strong. I'm surprised you didn't take any uh, King's Huntsman. And uh, yes, that's a joke. <laughs> but joking aside, I think... Yeah, I really like all the throwing spears and the bows. Like, I think if I didn't have Cave Dweller or, like, anything like that, which most lists don't, I think it would be quite intimidating to come up against this. Yeah, and I feel like with Galadriel, not only does she have the blinding light when you come into close range to activate on will, like, having the command, you know, it, it can be quite dangerous. I guess the only thing is that I think it's fine in this particular scenario, but not having a march and you have pretty much uh, all infantry force, aside from your heroes, I would consider Theoden instead of Aylmer. I know he's less killy and less durable, but if Gladriel's your leader, then it's not as bad. And you might actually fit a couple more guys in there. But I'll agree that this iteration with Aylmer is much better in Clash by Moonlight, though. I think either like this list or Corsairs is probably the list where you would see the most throwing weapons, you know, in a standard force. And I know I have 18 throwing weapons in mind, but most people don't take that many Prowlers. <laughs> but, but yeah, so 
I think in a generic list, I think Rohan and Corsairs of Umbar are the ones to watch out for in this scenario because they can really bring the throwing weapons. Well, I'm just going to put one of my last thoughts into this. I tried writing other lists and different combinations, and I just kept on coming back to Elfhelm with his amazing throwing weapon special rule, getting plus one to wound. And I was like, I'm going to put him in the list. I got to have him. It's going to be so cheeky. I have to do it. Ugh, it's haunting me. Like the week I had to write this list, I just kept on coming back to that. I actually really enjoy this list. I like the hero picks and the justification. I'm another person that has, on this podcast, repeatedly attempted to make the Lothlorien-Rohan alliance better than it often is. But I was very swayed by Rohan while I was writing my list, too, because just the number of throwing spears that you can put in this list. Ian doesn't need Rohan to have more buffs on foot. He doesn't. But this scenario gives him one. And for that reason alone, I like this. Typically, I, I, I'd be sitting there going, you know, Ian, you have to take more mounted troops because you have Rohan. That should be what's happening, but it's fine. It'll do the job. And in this scenario specifically, yeah, I'm afraid of it. It scares me, especially if you can do what you plan and just continuously heal your heroes. That's going to be really scary because the heroes are, aside from Amor, I think the other two are good, but not excellent but being able to kind of make them more aggressive will help you a lot. Okay, I'll be going over the last list of the day, and it is a Mordor list. So in the first warband, we have the Shadow Lord on horse, and he's leading six Black Minoians and six Mordor Orcs with Spear and Shield and two Orc Trackers. Second warband, we have the Dark Marshal on Felbeast, and he's leading five Black Minoians, three Mordor Orcs with Spear and Shield, three Orc Trackers, and one war rider with shield and throwing spear. And then I have a great beast of Gorgoroth, and then I have a second great beast of Gorgoroth. So that's 50 models, including the orc bowman in the howda, eight might, and 23 shots. So the Shadow Lord is the leader, by the way. My head immediately went to Shadow Lord when I thought of Clash by Moonlight, because the difference between Paul of Darkness and Blinding Light is that it doesn't illuminate the area like Blinding Light does. And generally, that term doesn't really mean all that much in gameplay. But in this particular scenario is one of the exceptions where casting light will allow your opponent to shoot at you. So it really helps in situations, especially where my opponent can shoot over the 12 inches. So like if I'm facing a list like Richard's Moria or Siege Weapons, I can put the aura up and protect my models from shooting. So the Dark Marshal will be sort of my combat hero with the Fell Beast and his base fight six. He's pretty decent. I've opted out of the banner because of the Dark Marshal's ability to provide the banner effect. And I noticed that we didn't mention this when we were covering our ranking ring rates episode, but the Dark Marshal is actually a surprisingly good caster. He's probably one of the best of the nine. There's some small differences in casting values if you take a look where um, he, for some reason, can cast Instill Fear on a 4. And I think only him and the Witch King uh, have a 4+. Plus. And also, um, he has a 12-inch range for Black Dart, whereas Shadow Lord and Undying have a 6-inch range for Black Dart. It's not a big difference, but I think that it shows that he's pretty versatile and that he can cast better than some caster roll wraiths. So him, along with the Shadow Lord, will provide good support as the rest of my army are just orcs and the two great beasts with no heroic strikes 
and basically will require their support in order to succeed. So the great beasts, what's so good about them is firstly, they provide like a howda in the way of protection for the orc archers at the top. And also the way the orcs are positioned from like an elevated position and also with the beasts uh, moving eight, it means that I can get really close to my targets. And it feels like the 12 inch limitation of Clash by Moonlight, not as impeding where I can move my great beasts around certain targets. And since there are orcs placed on both sides of the howda, it's like, even though all of them might not be able to shoot, I'll have the majority of them. I can angle in a way where I can get all the shots I can with the least amount of in the ways. Uh, since they're elevated, it helps with that. Most of my damage output will be from the 18 bows from the Great Beasts and also the Fell Beast. Like I said earlier, Dark Marshal has an improve in Still Fear. So hopefully I can use that to break an enemy battle line uh, so that the Great Beasts can trample more easily since their trample is only two strength six hits. They aren't the most reliable in terms of trampling. But yeah, that's pretty much my list. As long as the Great Beasts don't go down, it won't be that easy to break this list. But once the Great Beasts start going down, the Orc Archers are basically out of the game. Most of the time, they'll die from falling damage, and it goes downhill from there. So, you know, it's all about playing carefully with the Great Beasts and try to have them survive the game. I just love how we were talking about the Blinding Light FAQ, and then Charles is like, here's the Shadow Lord. He does not have such weaknesses. <laughs> I struggled to analyze the list while you're talking about it because I, I just kept imagining like everything being pitch black and then just hearing a rumbling and two massive great beasts just come out of nowhere, just like between two bushes out in front. And it's like, oh, OK, yeah, that's actually a pretty scary list. When I saw two great beasts, my first reaction was like, this seems like a lot of points to sink into two big star destroyers. But here we are with 18 orc bows that are on a platform. It's good, especially with the, the Pall of Darkness. I don't always love the Shadow Lord, but this is one of the situations where he's perfectly suited for it because not having blinding light means he doesn't make people see him. It's excellent. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I can say, really. I want to petition that uh, the cave dwellers... You can see through the pall of darkness because you know essentially you're seeing in the dark. So I mean, you should be <laughs> able to makes see through the dark. The... More dark. <laughs> Trust me, makes sense if you don't think about it. The motion carries. We already agree that this scenario doesn't make sense, so let's keep it that way. <laughs> okay, but I guess I really like the uh, fell beast pick. I know generally in our local meta uh, we don't see fell beast ran as much, but I think what's scary is all the positioning and, you know, standoff that will happen in this scenario will occur within the 12 inches. And having a fell beast allows you to control that whole space because anyone who wants to shoot at you will have to risk getting charged by the fell beast the following turn. And not to mention the great beasts of Orgroth with Doric March can also reach that distance. I think this is a very unique list. So not only was I surprised at what you chose to build, I think it's actually like quite tailor-made for this scenario. And I think it would reflect what your opponents feel too. If you come up against that, like it took me a while to process like how this plays and like what you're trying to do. And I feel like if an opponent does the same thing, by the time they realize halfway through the game, they've probably made some mistakes playing against it. So, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think it's incredibly deadly in the scenario. Well done. Thanks. 
I don't know. I'm just like I'm looking at it the way it is, and I guess the the one thing that's coming to mind is like your frontage of like troops on the ground isn't gonna be a lot. I don't think. Like especially once, like even after a couple rounds of shooting, like yeah, you're gonna reduce the opponent's bodies that are on the ground, but they're gonna be able to reduce your bodies that are physically on the ground. And when you have, you know, 18 models, you know, nearly 40% of your force just sitting on the Great Beasts, it just means, like, the models available to do stuff is going to be greatly reduced. So I think it might end up being fairly easy for your opponent to get those surrounds and the traps and stuff on the Great Beasts and the Dark Marshal. And how defensive are the Great Beasts? They're five wounds, defense seven. I see what you're getting here. The thing is, with so much shooting on the Great Beast, and as Richard mentioned, the Fell Beast, I think I'm the one that's going to control the zoning and where combat will happen. I mean, there's probably situations where my opponent will have the better shooting and I'll have to charge in, but it's not going to be a traditional battle line, right? Like, my Black Numenorians and my Orcs, they're kind of going to be hanging out behind the Great Beast until combat's engaged and... I'm aware that the Great Beasts have big bases and they can be surrounded, but if they're like flanking the back to ensure that doesn't happen and charging in after the Great Beasts are in, I won't feel as outnumbered if that makes any sense. Similar to back when uh, Richard brought like a, a Cave Drake list where he used like the size of the Cave Drake's bases to extend his battle line. I'm going with a similar plan with the Great Beasts. I think it could work, but it would really depend on like focusing and shutting down their heroes with your magic. I think the Great Beasts are okay from Warriors because you deflected the shooting with the Shadow Lord, and I think they can hold their own against regular Warriors. But I think if once you get a hero into the Great Beast, that's where they really struggle because they're only fight four. So I think, yeah, you, you might have to be quite aggressive with your magic. I mean, the, the one thing to the Great Beast defense, even though it is only 5-4, is that, like you said, with the uh, with the shooting you have up there, you should be able to pick off a lot of spear supports that are in the fight against it. So that really limits the amount of dice people can get into it. Uh, yeah, you can't throw a mounted model into it, too, because, you know, a good chance they just shoot down the horse. Yeah. But they're going to shoot at the horse anyway, so you might as well <laughs> try and get those extra dice while you can, I guess. Okay. So, having gone through all four Clash by Moonlight lists, now we're going to rank them. Just a discussion on which lists we think are the stronger and the strongest lists in this scenario. Richard, next question. (laughs) I think he might have the best firepower in this scenario. I know Ian also has a lot of throwing weapons, but Richard has more. (laughs) And Richard has models I can see in the dark. Also, he has a model that can shoot tentacles that don't require the waste. So I, I do think it's very strong. The only counterpoint I'd have to that is that he does have fairly weak heroes. I don't know how much that plays into things, considering he has three bats and a lot of ward marauders. But I feel like that should be mentioned. I think he still has a lot of hero killing ability, obviously, with like just with the Watcher in there anyway. But also with like the bats and the marauders. There's a lot there, but also, like, I don't know how much, like, his heroes can't exactly take a lot of punishment, so. Yeah, I, toss up. I think with the Watcher, at least from my experience with it, it does better against, like, a fewer bigger heroes rather than, like, more numerous mid-range fighty heroes. 
for example, like I'd be better against Alex's list with mainly just Elrond as the threat because the Watcher can just one shot it, right? And I could position it in a way that Elrond's not doing much, then Alex's army isn't doing much. But I think I might struggle a bit more with Yorzi and just because if you throw in all your mounty heroes all at the same time, like technically I can only try to take out one per turn, right? And that's if I'm lucky. So, yeah, I think just having the Watcher as, like, I guess my main threat would be my weakness because, yeah, my heroes and my troops aren't that great. I'm just hoping my firepower and, I guess, my shenanigans with the Bat Swarm and uh, Black Shield Shaman can kind of keep me alive long enough for the Watcher to do work. Immobilize only shuts down active special rules, right? It doesn't do anything to passive special rules? Yeah. Okay. I was just looking at the Bat Swarm. Its ability is passive. <laughs> I also think that Richard's Warg Marauders and Bat Swarms would be able to shut down Cav heavy lists a lot. So like Ian's mounted heroes are a little bit scary, but if you can throw in like a Warg Marauder on each of the hero, all of a sudden it's three attacks versus three attacks, or in some cases Elf Helm, two attacks. So it, it does neutralize the mounted heroes pretty quickly. So you do have answers to like big beat sticks. And also, maybe your goblin heroes are harder to take down than they look because your enemies won't have that plus one bonus from shooting. I know it doesn't mean much because they're mostly like one fate, two wounds, but I think it will help, especially when everyone is used to getting that wound bonus and then all of a sudden they're facing you and they don't get that bonus. It's like your models have extra defense. Just thinking, I feel like a Minas Tirith Force might do rather well against Richards. Because you could get a lot of those mid-tier heroes like Faramir and Huron and like a reasonable number of bows. So even when they close in, they'll still be able to shoot. Yeah, because you, your uh, force is mostly D4, right? It's like pretty much all defense for. I still have a fair amount of shields that are D5. But yeah, I, I do have a lot of D4. I don't think the low defense is the main weakness in combat for him. I think the main weakness might be that he has a lot of models that have to go two-handed. But with so many throwing weapons, he can kite a lot. He can rely on the throwing weapons to do damage. And by the time you're actually in combat with his prowlers, he's probably going to outnumber you. So it's a toss-up, I think. But he still moves five, though. He still only moves five with most of the army. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so kiting is harder, right? Like, if he comes up against a force with, like, a lot more cav or, like, a Rohan force with a hat, like, outranges his throwing weapons, that's, that's going to be an issue. He can get a few turns of throwing weapons in, and... I don't know if you would consider this, but he can also march and back away. Ian, I'm sure you're familiar with yeah. that. I just don't do that that much. I prefer to use the might for something else, but or you <laughs> the know, backing that... away and shooting, yes. Or, you know, just, just based on how many throwing weapons he has, I actually think it's worth calling a heroic shoot during that one turn where you're closing in on the charge range. He can do a heroic shoot against your list, for example, Ian, and maybe kill off a few more of your models, and that could be the game decider. Who knows? I just see so many throwing weapons, and I'm just scared. <laughs> they they still only hit on fours, right, or fives if they move, so it's eh. The more we're talking about this, the, I'm getting slightly less scared, because <laughs> I forgot about the two-handed weapon thing, and I think that actually is that's a really good point. That's You're going to hit hard, but because you're such low fight value and defense, you're going to lose a lot of guys once combat happens. I don't know. It'd be, be very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has its weaknesses, and I think even more so in a regular scenario. But like I said, in this particular scenario, I'm actually playing it like an avoidance list. Like, I'm going to try to avoid combat as much as possible, right? And the throwing weapons, even though I have 18, I'm not trying to be aggressive with them. 
like I'm gonna rely on my Ward Marauders 18 inch shooting as long as I can. So I think we all have pretty good lists here. So it, it is tough to decide. Alex, do you have a favorite for today? Still Richard. Okay. Are we gonna say second place goes to Ian today? Since we were kind of debating between Ian and Richard. Yeah, I think it's close between you two. I think I might be a bit more scared of Ian's. I, I think Charles, yours is more like taking the opponent by surprise because you, you bring something really unique. But I think at the end of the day, yeah, like a lot of orcs and the Grace Beast, I, I just feel like can be taken down. And whereas Ian is just too many throwing weapons and like having a mirror and he also has magic. I feel like his would probably perform a bit more consistently. Yeah, Grey Beasts aren't, aren't the most consistent profile. I check, uh, they have the hero keywords, so in combat they wouldn't even get the Dark Marshal's reroll. Which isn't a huge loss because the driver can't modify the Great Beast rolls anyway. Wait, so, so if you kill the Great Beast and the Orc Captain dies on top of it, is that two hero deaths? Because that actually works against you too. I don't think so, because the Great Beast doesn't have a slot for Might Will Fate. I think it just combines all the like the, the rider's keywords into the profile. So I think that would count as, as still as one hero kill. Because I think the Mumak is the same. The Mumak it has a hero keyword too, because it has a driver. Well, if you look where it splits the profiles, it has the Orc Commander, and then it has the keywords beside that, and it has the hero there. But then the Great Beast part of it doesn't have uh, the hero keyword beside it. Oh, so it doesn't have the hero keyword. It does if you look at like the general breakdown where it has like the, the name and then the, the thing and then the points. But then if you look down in the subsection of the profile where it has all the three different okay. profiles, it doesn't have. That's so, a little bit confusing, but that's yeah. It, it shows you what part of the collective is the hero, I guess. Which, to be fair, it actually means like it's going to be kind of hard for your opponents to get hero kills against your list. Unless, like, it's going to be hard to get the, the ring wraiths into difficult positions unless, unless you play them, like, really badly. And then same thing with the Great Beast. Like, you're not going to be able to harm the commanders until you kill the Great Beast itself effectively. So it's good VP denial. Slightly off topic, but similar to the trick in the Black Riders Legion where people have been using the ring wraiths will to end the game. As long as that's still allowed, I can see that in this situation as well, where if a hero is about to kill your ring wraith, or you think that the next turn they're going to kill your ring wraith, you can expend more of your will so that you go down to zero, right? And that would deny your opponent VP as well. Doesn't that count as a casualty, though? It does count as a casualty towards you breaking. But I don't think it would count, for example, in like Lords of Battle or in this case, because your enemy didn't kill him. It depends. So I, I just was just looking at it. So it says for more heroes that you have killed, you get a certain number of points. But it also says if your opponent has no heroes left alive. So if you got rid of your hero that way and then you, all of your other heroes died, your opponent would get more VPs. Right. So that, that there's, still, there's still an inherent risk of that. But that is an interesting strategy. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine with Ian being second. <laughs> fourth <laughs> it's the natural conclusion we went over you three and there's only the four of us i don't see anybody else here so unless we have a lot more uh, podcast hosts with their mics and, and cameras off that i'm not noticing uh, that just leaves me i mean fourth place at a tournament still isn't bad yeah but it's a four-person tournament richard it's not a, it's not not a good setup <laughs> you always bring the most balanced list 
Okay, let's move on to our open topic today. topic today we'll be talking about rules of ages past so typically this podcast is focused on strategy and competitive play today's episode is a little bit less serious so what we've done is we've gone through older rule books from previous editions all the way back to 2001 and we've picked out profiles that have gotten the most change and we'll kind of react to them and compare them with how they are now and how they would be if they were to exist today. So the game's over 20 years old at this point. So expect a lot of crazy profiles and uh, yeah, this should be fun. So, oh we'll yes. Just... So I guess one thing is, you know, we can post these pictures of these profiles that we're going to talk about on our Facebook page as well along with the list that we just talked about. So, you know, if you guys want to follow along and take a look at these profiles, you know, some of them are pretty wild and uh, we probably won't be going through every single little thing about this profile, but yeah, um, if you didn't play the game back then or you just haven't looked at the rules in a really long time, I suggest you go take a look. Okay, so we're just going to go and start from 2001. Fellowship of the Ring, first edition of the game. And just to give some context, back then, I don't think there was match play. The game was narrative-based, and it's all about playing through scenarios that happen in the movies. So the profile will sound really crazy, but that's how the game was played back then. So the first profile we'll be going over is Arwen Evenstar. And she's not too different based on like the stat line. She does have two attacks and three might, three will, three fate, so a little bit different there. But I guess the, what I wanted to focus on was that she gets a spell called Confound. It's a six-inch magical power, four-plus to cast. Arwen can use this power to raise the forces of nature to send her enemies reeling. The spell affects all enemies within six inches of her, but only one effective foe can attempt to resist it. If resisted, all foes are unaffected. If the foe fails to resist, then all are affected. And all enemies within six inches of Arwen are driven directly away beyond the radius of effect. All models affected are thrown to the ground, suffer a strength three, strike, and lose one point of will. So this was before Nature's Wrath was written. And just imagine the successful casting of this spell. All models move six inches away from her, are knock prone, and take a hit and lose a will absolutely destroy ring rates <laughs> yeah this feels like a special rule that was specifically written for like that ford scenario where she's trying to run away with frodo and instead they're like ah let's just put it in the profile <laughs> it's like a combination of nature's wrath and instill fear yeah i i mean that's just a ridiculous spell like uh, definitely overpowered and yeah, she doesn't get the 12 inch move horse, but two attack, two wounds, fight six, three might, three will, three fate on 65 points. I mean, just that stat line is already broken. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Ian, do you want to read the second picture? I'll do the next one. I got if somebody wants to do the next one, and I'll do the one after. Okay, so the second one is Galadriel, and I'll just tack on Celeborn too, because they both kind of are similarly written. So basically, they're a lot cheaper. First of all, Galadriel at 90 base and Celeborn at 65. 
And this is a very theme-based rule. It's called Lothlorien. So if you're playing outside of Lothlorien, Galadriel has three might, three will, and three fate. If the battle's fought within the boundaries of Lothlorien, Galadriel has no might, will, or fate store, but she gets three might, three will, and three fate per turn. So that is the biggest change. <laughs> I mean, that, that's pretty insane. I mean, I don't think it'll happen a lot, but can you just imagine rolling up at a tournament and then... <laughs> If there's some like Lothlorien looking trees and you just ask your opponent like can you confirm this is Lothlorien <laughs> to you and then after they answer you bring out your army <laughs> just just walk up to any table that has trees on it this is Lothlorien right <laughs> to a lesser degree Kelborn also have this rule but instead of three 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 he's three two one which is still insane oh man he only gets one fate a turn I just want to say as well I guess he's been getting the short end of the stick from the beginning of time because he has one attack for an elf lord, whereas Arwen, as we just saw, same points value and already has two attacks. <laughs> the mirror is a little bit different. The mirror restores one fate. I think right now it restores all fate. She also doesn't have blinding light. I don't think that rule uh, existed yet, but still just like a powerhouse. Like Sometimes when I have a mighty hero, like with one mighty turn, I'm not even sure what to use that might on. And she has, she gets three a turn. <laughs> You're basically just immobilizing on a six, like every turn then. Yeah. She's just casting, you know, ah, I'll just boost that up to a six. Yeah, yeah, why not? Ian, do you want her to go for the next one? All right, so next we have Gwahir. So, oh, this is interesting. Okay, so he's only, he's fight eight, but he's only strike five. One attack. Three wounds, courage six, and uh, yeah, I guess D8. He's 75 points, and he only has one might, zero will, zero fate. However, he has the fly special rule, but it's a little different. Oh, this isn't the super ridiculous one. This is the one that he only gets to move 24 inches a turn. I think this is the, this is the super ridiculous one. Or is this, is this the ridiculous one? Yeah, so yeah. he gets 24 inches of movement a turn, um, which is insane. Like, if Reconnoiter was in any pack, you would always take him and just get him off the board in two turns. Boom, boom. <laughs> I have points now. <laughs> That's crazy. And then I think this is the one, yeah, this is the one where Gandalf could mount, could jump on him, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think anyone can mount him, right? Or is it just Gandalf? I think you need Gandalf to include Gwahir in the army. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think what's crazy about the fly, though, in this edition is you can hover in the air at the end of your move and decide not to fight. So you can move your 24-inch halfway across the board, and if you're in the middle of a battle line, you can choose to remain in the air and not have anyone charge you. That's insane. Like, oh, can yeah. you guys imagine, like, seize the prize? Just going to be like, oh, <laughs> I'm going to stay in the air. No one can charge me. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's insane. Yeah, that's ridiculous. And any objective yeah. scenario, you, you, just, you can easily just camp on something. Wait, yeah, how does that – wait, what? Yeah, you just sit there and then, oh, you can't come within one inch because of my control zone, but also you can't charge. Is that how that works? That can't be how that works. What if you just mount Legolas on the Guayir and just shoot, shoot <laughs> bombs from the sky like Apollo? Also, um, models shooting at Guayir, they're basically reduced to half range. So if yeah. Guayir is over half their, their normal bow range, they can't shoot him. Flying high up in the sky. Crazy. That's crazy. Okay, like the fly is crazy, but I still can't get over the carry a rider. Like we just talked about Arwen. Imagine carrying Arwen and then she does her crazy confound spell. Like, or you mount like Galadriel with her three might a turn, and then you basically have a, a command distance of uh, 36 inches. 
So it says that when somebody like here picks up a rider, he can carry a single rider. The usual rules for mounts apply, except that if the rider is thrown from his back while flying, the model just loses all its wounds. You can save yeah. that with fate, but you could just instantly die. Yeah, yeah just fate. Who cares? But also, so says, gets three a turn. <laughs> dude, part of the fluffy text, it says, like, if you save it with fate, you assume that Guhir makes a heroic crash landing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is wild, man. <laughs> All right, who wants to go over the next one? I guess I'll go. Since... Okay, since you're the more you have list today. Yeah, so uh, we have the Balrog at 250 points. Stats, fairly similar. Still no might and still no fate. The will is equal to the wounds. Is that... Yeah, so however many wounds you have left, that's how much you can roll to resist. Okay, yeah. Okay, that, I mean, I feel like that's quite good. Um, Starting out, (laughs) you have 10. So (laughs) I don't think a lot of people are getting through that. And you're not going to get wounded very much. So I think that's definitely an upgrade from the current version. I mean, the points value is already different. So Terror Goblin Mastery is pretty similar. I think the Lash works a little bit differently here. Yeah, so you have four attacks, and then you nominate one of your attacks to be the Lash. And I think if that dice wounds, then you get two more attacks. So you can potentially have six strikes if you win the fight. Okay, so I guess that's more simple. The current Lash is probably better. Gives him a bit more striking range. But I mean, at 250 points, and he doesn't get the hero combat, but I, I feel like this is this would still be uh, stronger than the current profile. What do you guys think? I think this is really good, especially this was first edition of the game. There was no heroic strike, and you know, there's not a lot of heroes that can deal with it. I know we mentioned Galadriel, but if her spells don't go through, it's pretty hard to take them on. I know in later editions, uh, the Balrog went up to like 400 points for a while, and for a while he was a a meme profile, but this one is pretty scary. I mean, so far, all the profiles we've read are really scary. I think like the the current edition, reading back to this, I had never actually read these profiles from first edition until now, and I'm I'm, I'm pretty freaked out. Guys, I'm scared. (laughs) Like, I'm, I'm afraid this is some of these things, like, come on gets four attacks and the lash can give him another two he gets six attacks he's got 10 wounds and 10 10 will points and i know some people say like oh you know first edition was kind of like oh if you played good you won if you played evil you lost it was like well i don't know balrog's got six attacks i will say an interesting thing to note is i was looking at like some of the profiles in the editions like after this and for the most part, things aren't horribly imbalanced. Like, there's no, like, crazy, crazy special rules. It's mostly just like, oh, this should be, like, 10 points more expensive. This should be a little bit cheaper. But, like, these ones from the first edition are just kind of batch it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think they got it right pretty quickly. But I might suggest that, you know, if everything is broken, maybe nothing is broken and it's balanced. <laughs> For the next one, we're going to move forward a little bit to uh, 2006. This was when the Fall of the Necromancer supplement came out, and we got the first edition of the Spider Queen. It's a very talked-about profile on this podcast. So if you look at the profile, the stat line is pretty similar. It has, like, one less attack and one less might, and the broodlings have a little bit shorter distance. But what is crazy about this one is the ridiculous points value of 75, and I remember when the profile first came out, it was considered an unnamed hero. 
because I remember at events, people were bringing two, three spider queens. And it wasn't until like a couple tournaments later, people like confirmed, FAQ'd it to be a, a named hero. But just imagine having multiple spider queens uh, that can spawn broodlings. <laughs> mm, yeah, I guess no, no additional comments. It's, it's good. It was really crazy good. Ian, one of your favorite profiles. Do you want to read the next one? Ah, the original Outwalker. Glorious, glorious profile that it is. So basically the profile is exactly the same, the base profile is, except, you know, it does. It just has Expert Rider as a special rule. It doesn't have the, the special Courage rule that it has now. And, oh, oh yeah, wait a second. What's this? They're, they're heroes and they have zero might, zero will, and one fate. That's not that much of an issue, you would say. <laughs> oh, Oh my, you would be incorrect, my good sirs, because this is before the era of the gambling FAQ, when gambling's special banner would give one point of might to every Rohan hero within three inches, I believe, that did not have any might at the start of the turn. So, you would end up with a ton of these Rohan Outriders just standing around with a free point of might to use on their shooting attacks every turn. And they're heroes, so they don't count towards the bow limit. It's absolutely disgusting. For 10 points. Yeah, 10 points and then, yeah, horse for an extra 5 points. Absolutely insane. Can you imagine, like, a Rangers of Athelion list? Or, or uh, Rangers of the North list, but, like, with this instead? Oh, you're so much better. Yeah, it's, uh, that's pretty filthy. But my question to you is, if we consider the gambling nerf, would you take this model in the current edition? Take one of them, like stick him like right beside, like because then you can still have like a, like use it as a as a warband drop for deployment advantage, and then he can just follow gambling around using free points of might. Like I think that's arguably better than Aldor or Halith because he's just so cheap. Like you mount him, he's still fifty points. That's still super cheap. But normally when you take gambling, there's probably a, a better suited hero to get that money, right? Like even giving it to gambling himself, he so he can perk defense every turn. Yeah, but you have to go down to zero points of might, right? Yeah. So yeah. in the early game, like 15 points for that, I think is, is probably worth it. True. All right. Make sure you want to cover the next one. I guess it's just the Far Harad models. Okay. From first glance, they look pretty similar to the current edition. Not much has changed. They're a bit more expensive. Mahood Warrior is at 11 points. The Camel, the Raider, is fairly similar at 20 the half trolls at 22. What pops up to me is that the warrior and the camel has two attacks base and fight four. Yeah, so so I guess yeah, that's actually really good. <laughs> it's like a berserker. Yeah, uh, I, I, I eleven think, points, man. I think the the half troll Sheesh. is the one that didn't really change, and if because the warriors are so good, there's almost less reason to take the half trolls. Yeah, so the only difference with the half troll is they don't have terror back then. And also for all three profiles, they're courage one instead of courage two. So their weakness is even worse. Um, How does warrior pride work in this? Warrior pride, iteration? so it's it's similar to the army bonus now, but it's like it just we would cover your whole army. And um, it remind me in this edition, was uh losing a courage test after breaking, was it instant removal or was it you just run towards the closest edge? Because if it's run towards the closest edge, then Courage 1 isn't that bad. I think at this time it was removal. I think that was okay. the blue rulebook where they changed it to uh, count as a casualty. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, kind of missed the days of the, the conga lines of guys just running back and forth. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. 
Yeah, for yeah. listeners who aren't aware, uh, there, there was a point of time where instead of uh, removing the model, once it's uh, failed a courage test, when your force is broken, you move away from your enemy, your full movement, instead of being removed. So there were just situations where your armies would move back and forth and back and forth uh, after you, they've broken. One more thing I could spot is that impale back then is just a strength four hit that you deal on your way in. So the way it's worded, you couldn't do it more than one turn. So like if you kill that model, I think that's it. It's not as devastating. I think this is probably the most balanced version of that rule, by the way. <laughs> I hate the way that it works right now. It's so good. Yeah, all you have to do is give them two attacks and fight four to balance that. Well, then we can make the impale worse. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, so this is reminded me of another profile that I don't think we have on here. Not broken in a good way, but kind of broken in like a general sense. And this is the the original iteration of the Kondish mercenaries, where basically you would take an army of them and they were kind of underpointed, but you would roll a die for every single model in your army before the game started. And on a roll of a one, the model just didn't show up to the fight. <laughs> So you would just end up with, like, one-sixth of your army not showing up because they were mercenaries. I like oh, that. I like that. So funny. You know, all the all the times that we're like, man, a third of my army didn't show up until turn four. But now that's just actually what your army is like. You're paying points to know that 18, 16, 18, some odd percent of your army just was not going to show up at all. I'm reading these rules and being like, wow, it was today that I learned this. I'm pretty sure the first edition I played was the big blue rule book in about 2008. So some of these things, I'm just like, wow, this game was very different. The next one is going to be a bunch of profiles, and it is the end profile. So this is from the Best of White Dwarf. It came out in a magazine, so it's not an official rule for ends. So the basic end profile is the same. It's a little cheaper, but it's it's pretty similar. It doesn't have the new brutal power attack, but it does have a tree-ish rule, which is they start asleep where you have to roll like a dice every turn. And if the dice rolls less than the current turn number, then they wake up. So the first few turns of the game, they won't really be moving or doing anything. What's interesting is this White Dwarf article included upgrades where you can get different species events. So some of them are slightly stronger. Some like one of them doesn't need to wake up. One of them has like better magic resistance. So I think that's really cool. And I think if that existed today in the Fangorn army, it would provide a lot of utility and also just you don't have leftover points, which I feel like, especially before uh, Warren Rohan gave them the two new end heroes, I feel like a lot of the times playing Fangorn, you just have leftover points and that's always like a feels bad moment. So I think if they included these sort of special rules, it would make the army a lot more interesting. Yeah, just to add on to that, I agree. Like it just gives more customization and yeah, you could definitely build a more well-rounded end force. Yeah, it gives them more utility because most of the time I think people don't consider this as like a viable force going to a tournament. It's just you're going to face certain armies that's just you're just not going to have much of a chance against. And I think having these little utility things that you can add to your army can really help. Not saying they'd be super competitive, but they, they'd be closer. All right. So the next profile is Watcher in the Water. So again, this one wasn't an official rule. Okay, It came out in a White Dwarf as well. And this was, I think it came with a battle report where someone did at uh, the Gate of Moria. And there wasn't an official model until a little bit later on where Games Workshop actually released a pack of tentacles. 
there was like a, a metal set of tentacles where if they were all on cab bases and there was no watcher body model with the game, you just got the tentacles. And so this wasn't actually in any sort of edition, but it's more like a scenario profile. So it's really hard to compare to the current watcher because they're nothing alike. But essentially the tentacles move independently and you can try to drag a model if you win the fight and instead of trying to wound them. And then if you wound the tentacle, then it drops whatever model it grabs. The watcher body is, again, because this is a scenario model, it doesn't have any wounds. But what happens is if you've picked up a model, you can try to drag it into base-to-base -base contact with a Watcher, and then the Watcher will make D6 strength 8 hits to try to eat it. And then if they're eaten, they die. So it's like unrecognizable compared to the current Watcher profile. I don't think it would work in a match play sort of setting, but yeah, very interesting. I like the eating part. I feel like that should be in more profiles. Um, nom, nom, nom. If the current watcher profile had like tentacles on separate bases, they would make it really interesting, but also a little bit too complex, I think. Like if each tentacle, instead of it being a shooting attack, it was a base. Yeah, wait, does it say that they have to stay within a certain like radius of each other? Or do they just, can they just move anywhere on the board? I assume it would have to be on water if it's, if it's I, I don't think so. Oh, okay, That's yeah. So if it's just in a small water feature, okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. It doesn't say it has to be in water, but oh, the watcher body cannot move out of the water. The tentacles just go everywhere. Ew. Yeah. It's creepy. The watcher in the mud flats, because tentacles can go anywhere. So, Richard, do you want to go over the next two? They're kind of side by side. Okay, sure. Yeah. So we have Elrond and Gilglad. Elrond's 120 points, Gilglad is 125. They have pretty similar stats as now, with the exception of the fight value. Elrond is the one with fight 9, and Gilgalad is fight 6. They don't really have all their special rules that they have now. Gilgalad is fearless, and he just has a regular tall spear, and Elrond has a two-handed sword. So I, I wouldn't say like these are broken in any sense, just because they're just base profiles. But I guess it's kind of wild that Elrond has fight nine, but having a two-handed sword and not being able to take a horse, I guess, makes him not too bad. Yeah. I give him a six. <laughs> oh, wait, this was back when, um, when like your fight value only applied to your dice, right? Okay, that makes Elrond not that good, actually. I was going to say 120 points for fight nine. That's pretty good, but never mind. That's not great. So what Ian is saying is if Elrond is supported by like a Spearman or if he's in a multiple combat, only Elrond's dice are fight nine. You don't take the highest in the fight. Yeah. So there wasn't Heroic Strike back then, so fight nine basically means that his six would always win unless you're fighting the Balrog. Also, this was before the time of Cavalry, because this is Fellowship Edition. Cavalry didn't come until two towers, so being like a foot slog sort of hero isn't too bad, I guess, because everyone was on foot. But yeah, wait, this Gilgalad, that, that's not from the same edition, is it? I believe it is, yeah. Why is he more expensive when he's just he's just flat out worse? Well, he doesn't have a minus one, right? Elrond has a minus one. I mean, I guess, but he's got like three less fight, one less courage, two less fate, and all he has is fearless. Yeah, the, the fearless is not the fearless that we know now. I mean, it's In five more points, like, that's just so weird. Yeah, I don't get the reason. Ian, I think you know this one well. This next one is Thranduil, and we're going to be comparing the one from the previous edition, the Hobbit edition, and then the one from the edition before. 
Okay, so the the OG, the original Thranduil, is he's great. I miss him. It's kind of like a base profile you would take now for Thranduil with the Circle of Kings, but I'll, I'll just run through the profile quickly. So he had fight six with two up shoot value, strength four, d five, two attacks, two wounds, courage six, and three two two for my well fate, and he's ninety points. He has armor and elven cloak, the good elven cloak that it used to be. Elven blade, an elf bow, and an oaken staff. He also has the Circlet of Kings. Oh, this is a different Circlet of Kings. The Circlet of Kings actually got better in the next edition. So in this one, it only gives him the Aura of Dismay once per game. However, in the edition after that, it also gave him Nature's Wrath, which is as we know now. But yeah, in any case, this profile is just absolutely insane for 90 points. Like, it was it's so good. And like, the utility was great. And just, yeah, no, it was ridiculous. Okay, and then the next one is his, his first Hobbit iteration, which I I think it's almost exactly the same as it is now if you give him the um, the, the heavy armor and the extra elven-made sword. So he's 140 points. He's got the fight seven, two up shoot, strength four, d6, three attacks, three wounds, courage six, three, three, three. And I think Bladed Lord works the same as it does now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So basically, yeah, like this This is just like crazy awesome fighty version of Thranduil, which I don't think you see this iteration of him that much anymore because most people just go, ah, I'm just going to take the circlet as well. But I do miss the option for old underpointed Thranduil with just the magic because 90 points for that was ridiculous. Yeah, I like how they retooled him in this new edition because it pays homage to the OG, but it also keeps the fighty one that we see in the movies. So, like, the current profile is really just like a combination of both, right? He's super versatile. Brings me back to episode one of this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do agree with, like, I think the way most people run him now, which is, like, you always go with the fighty version. Because, like, the thing that made this magic-focused version of him so good was that he was only 90 points. If you want to build something like that now, he's going to be, like, 130-something points. Or 140 if you give him the bow and stuff. So it's, like, that that points difference is huge. Okay, so the next one is going to be Urkenbrand and how he's changed. So when he first came out in uh, the Two Towers supplement in about around 2006... You know, he's still like the captain level sort of stat line that we see today. But the Horn of Helm Hammerhand, you uh, activate it once per game. And then at the beginning of the fight phase, all Rohan models on the battlefield count as within three inches of a banner. So it's like a one-time battlefield-wide banner. And then in the next edition of the game, it changed to plus two courage instead of the previous ability. So the Horn became like a huge courage buff. And I often see him allied in into an army just for that plus two courage. Also, it was a way to gain fight four Riders Rohan with his Westfold Red Shields upgrade. And in the new edition, a lot of people, including myself, forgot that that got changed. Westfold Red Shields now just count Urkenbrand as a banner effect instead. But that was a really easy way of getting in fight four, especially last edition where Riders Rohan weren't the best picks because they're fight three. And I think Urkenbrand was a great pick. But now he's different again. I think these were good changes because the problem with last edition is if you were going to run Rohan, you had to take him or you just weren't going to run Riders of Rohan, which really limited your list. So like it makes sense. And I think he's he's probably at a fairly good balance level now, I guess. I mean, I kind of wish his upgraded something else, but it's not, it's not bad. 
the change to his horn over the years very interesting i don't know if i love the banner why the battlefield wide banner thing is good but it's only one turn so i don't know like if that's absolutely amazing if it was like a banner effect that you could stack with another banner that would be if he had that battle-wide banner today and you took him in Aomer's Legion and you activated at the same time as the shade effect, that would yeah. be a devastating turn. That would be really good. That's that's a good point. Yeah, that would make that would make it really good. That being said, I think the the, the addition after this one, he, the horn just became a flat out plus two courage to everybody, and he was like seventy-five points mounted on the horse. Yep. That I think was like Urkin Rand's like peak. That was also when he could upgrade the, the, the Westfold Red Shields. I think that was peak Urkham Brand. Like, he's so good. There's no reason not to take him. And I did. I took him in a lot of lists. <laughs> Every Rohan list. And whenever I hear the name Urkham Brand, I'm just reminded of all the games we had pre this edition where Urkham Brand was everywhere. And, and now like, he is nowhere. Now he doesn't even, like, he, he's essentially been pushed out of, like, all competitive Rohan list building. But it was like like that, and I used to like ally him with elves, and I just have courage eight like seven or eight elves just running around like we're invincible to courage. Like it's just it's it's so stupid. All right, Ian, I think the last one should be yours. It's it's one of your favorites. Okay, so this is from when the um, Battle of Five Armies was first released, and it, it's basically like a souped up Legolas profile, some that we affectionately call Megalas because he's Mega Legolas. Basically, his profile is, like, exactly the same in terms of the way the special rules and stuff work, except for his deadly shot. This is back when it just auto-hit. You didn't need to do the 2+. plus. And it has... Uh, the war gear is, like, the same. So he has the armor, the elf bow, and orcrist. I think orcrist works the same as it does now. Yeah. He has options for a horse. Might well fit is the same. The biggest thing is in his base profile, and that is that he's fight 7 and 3 attacks. And his points cost is 125 points. This is a profile that so many people got mad about and were upset about. And, like, I'm not entirely sure why. Because, like, I get it. It's really good. But he also pays for all of the upgrades that he gets. And he still is, like, it turns into a combat hero. But it's like, yeah, but he's still only defense five with two wounds. So, I don't know. I love this profile. I was very sad to see it go. I don't think he... If you go by the um, way we calculate costs now, like because right now he doesn't get Orcris automatically, right? And and having an extra attack and extra fight value, let's say that's around ten points a piece on a hero. So you're essentially getting Orcris for five points. points. No, no, it's so he's 125 points in this one, and his base cost right now, if you look in the the Merkwood list, is 95 with the armor. So 30 oh, points for Orcrest, okay. the attacks was, and the wounds. I was yeah. thinking 100, yeah. I think it's 100 in the Fellowship one, but that's because he has the final count special rule. Last edition, he was 90 base in the Fellowship. So I guess if you compare it to last edition's Fellowship version, then he is significantly more expensive because he went up in points. I feel like the main purpose of it was just how invincible he looked in the movie, in the third movie. And they wanted his fight value to match Bolg because he beats Bolg. And it makes more sense that he's about as good in combat as Bolg. That's how I reason it, at least. And I think I think why it's so frustrating, too, is like, yes, like, I guess you can say it's similar points efficiency as the current one. But right now, the current Legolas has a weakness. It's in combat, <laughs> and you're essentially removing that weakness. And he's still quite an affordable hero. Like, 
I don't know, like, this is, like, in the range of, like, a Thorin or, like, you know, Thrain or, like, Thrower right now. And, yeah, you can't tell me that <laughs> you wouldn't rather have Megalus. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> Trust me, I love this profile. I want to take it, like, all the time. Like, it is fantastic. I mean, I guess he doesn't have the Elven Cloak, but, like, you don't really care. Like, dude, running this profile mounted up and then you took the, the Thrain wheel like the normal throne profile with the, the fighty version, like having the two of them together was disgusting. The one thing he didn't need in the last edition with this was the elven cloak. Because think about it. What's he going to hide from? Nothing. Everything hides from him. <laughs> it's impossible. The day this got nerfed was like, I remember The it. saddest day of my life. I remember the memes because there were the videos of guys being like, I just painted up my Legolas or my, my Megalus. And they were like, Megalus has been nerfed. And they were just like the saddest thing. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a Legolas that could do everything. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. I think Mirkwood, I must say Mirkwood's actually still fairly competitive list now. If Mirkwood had him in it now with the army bonus it has now, whoo, whoo, it'd be so good. It'd be so good. So these are the profiles that we've picked out from previous editions, and it's been fun comparing them to their present forms. Let us know what you all think. And again, you can find all these profiles on our Facebook page if you want to follow along. Thank you all for listening and look forward to the next episode of Into the West. <laughs> <laughs>